Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you, uh, wherever you may live in the world, are having a great weekend and are doing all right, uh, which is you know, the most important thing. Uh, what I do know is that uh, given that I'm back on the air with you guys, uh, believe it or not, we have made it uh, to the epilogue of this uh, book topic uh, podcast series uh, being disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie. I must say it has been a um, a, ber- a very um, unique journey, given that, uh, yes, we you know, know about um, certain uh, famous um, shipwrecks, most notably like, you know, Titanic, uh, Lusitania, uh, some of the uh, more uh, bigger um, shipwrecks that have... Um, that have uh, been studied about over the years. But at the same time, it's often easy to forget that there have been um, countless other shipwrecks, not not just so much throughout the world, but uh, within uh, the United States that have, um, that have often been forgotten. And many of those shipwrecks have often occurred on the Great Lakes, especially even um, the wreck of the steamship Erie, that's not to say that uh, that there are those out there whom have known about this uh, wreck for some time, but it's just not been probably made into something on a larger scale. Um, but of course, most people do know that um, that when they tend to think of uh, shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, that is for those people who are not who don't live on Great Lakes waters. But when they do tend to think of uh, shipwrecks, I think it's fair to say that the one that often comes out in their minds is the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, given that it um, occurred not just so much back in 1975, but also through uh, the late Gordon Lightfoot's uh, famous song, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But nonetheless, I will uh, say that even um, for for ships that weren't as big as, say, 729 feet long, like the Edmund Fitzgerald was, that even for a steamship, uh, being that of uh, Steamship Erie, even her story is one that obviously um, is important to tell, and it's also important not to forget, uh, given that, um, yes, that uh, steamships, as um, unique as they were, and they still do exist today, but more so for recreational purposes, but we do have to be reminded that at one time, uh, st- that uh, transporting people from point A to point B uh, via steamboat or steamship uh, was a big deal because, um, you know, people wanted, for one, you know, traveling by horse and buggy wasn't always reliable, but moving uh, via waterway, really, in a sense, prior to uh, the railroads uh, taking over, that was really the best way to get from point A to point B at a uh, quicker pace versus uh, horse and buggy. So here we are at the epilogue to this uh, podcast book topic series, and we're going to learn about what happened to um, certain um, people, especially uh, you know Captain Thomas Jefferson Titus. We're going to learn what uh, happened uh, with Charles Manning Reed. We're also going to find out if any other, um, or rather I should say we're going to find out if Congress went about enacting um, better legislation 
that um, pertain to not just so much the well-being of steamboats, but perhaps the well-being of passengers so that um, incidents like what happened aboard Erie could be uh, greatly reduced. In other words, yes, there was a law passed in 1838, but based upon what I gathered from having read the book, that law was just a basic beginner's law. In other words, sometimes it might take uh, tragedies like this incident where new, uh, tougher laws need to be put into place so that um, mishaps and unfortunate uh, tragedies like what happened aboard Erie no longer become a common norm along the waters during the time not only of the 1840s, which were, which happened to be a very uh, turbulent period of time, uh, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, how there were um, more and more um, incidents along Great Lakes waters where um, explosions occurred and uh, a great deal of life was more than likely lost. So there has to be um, some kind of new legislation out there that will help uh, modify um, the existing issues, and that's uh, one thing that will be um, talked about. Um, so I think it's time to uh, get the show on the road um, to the epilogue of Disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie by Alvin F. Oikel. Here is our leadoff question to the epilogue of the series. In the aftermath of Erie's wreck, did a legend, or rather I should say a story, emerge based upon the bravery or courage displayed by a fictional crew person, or rather I should say a member? Uh, the answer is yes. A legend or a story did in fact come about through a fictional crew person known as John Maynard. But it was not until 1845, four years after Erie sinking, that, um, that the legend really uh, went into uh, full gear. An anonymous piece of writing, uh, an anonymous, whenever like, when I think of anonymous, usually it's like an anonymous uh, tipster who's called into a hotline uh, to provide evidence to the, um, to the local police department about... Um, say, you know, about a crime and a person who might be wanted. An anonymous uh, viewer is, you know, providing um, vital information that could help uh, investigators solve a cold case that has, you know, gone unsolved for a number of years. But in this case, an anonymous piece of writing, in this case, an anonymous piece of writing being that of a sketch, a short story, where there's little information to go by, emerges come July 19th of 1845 in the Poughkeepsie Journal and Eagle. And for those of you who are wondering um, where is uh, Poughkeepsie located in terms of a state, uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, which is uh, not far from uh, the Catskill country in, uh, in uh, the southern end of uh, New York State, not too far from um, where... Really, in a sense, it's not too far from the New York State, New York City line, but um, but north of um, White Plains, where uh, Poughkeepsie is, north of White Plains. So the Poughkeepsie Journal and Eagle um, goes about publishing this anonymous piece of writing or sketch, short story, even though there's little information to go by, but it, but it all um, centers upon eerie sinking, which included 
old John Maynard in quotations. So I'm sure some of you are wondering why why is it that this synonymous piece of writing has all of a sudden emerged? Why is it that a fictional character needs to um, come about in the midst of a uh, tragedy? Well, to better answer that question, how about this one? Was it common for the use of poetry to be submitted in regards to shipwreck incidents? It just so happens, folks, that yes, it was very common for the use of uh, poetry, or rather I should say literature or literary writing, to be submitted um, when it came to shipwreck incidents. Throughout most, if not the entire 19th century, countless literary works got published and printed telling stories of shipwrecks whose messages, or aka poetry verses, uh, to... Um, brief write-up articles talked about such things as loss of life, sense of grief, to remembering those whom perished along the seas. Now, of course, when I one of the most famous shipwreck songs I know of really is Gordon Light, the late Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And one of the lines, he talks about how does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Normally, um, it would have been fair to say that when um, ships along the Great Lakes are dealing with some rough waves, rough waters, they don't—they uh, would only last for a short period of time. But if Mother Nature really fuels the fire just right, and the warm air and the cold air collide, and the waves start kicking up at 20 to 30 feet, and they're pounding relentlessly with no end in sight— you know the sailors and the you know the crew and the captain himself have to wonder when is this uh, suffering going to end? Yes, God is looking after us, but at the same time, even God Himself doesn't have control over Mother Nature's enduring wrath. And you know, sadly, with the case of the Fitzgerald, twenty-nine men lost their lot, lost their lives. All twenty-nine men, and. You know, God is uh, looking after those deceased uh, crewmen. Of course, they their bodies were never brought up, and they are um, lying at the bottom of at least... Uh, I know that, that the ship sank on the Canadian side of Lake Superior, and it's about where the ship is uh, located in terms of the surface. It's probably about 700 or 800 feet uh, well below the surface, which is pretty deep. As a matter of fact, you can fit all four of the other Great Lakes into Lake Superior. That's just how big uh, Superior herself is. Of course, uh, the Indians that live there, uh, as Gordon Lightfoot's intro said, the legend lives on down. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down from the big lake they call Gitchagumi. And Superior, you know, herself never gives up her dead, even when the skies of November turn gloomy. Now, I don't know if I worded all that right, but that's what I do uh, remember from the intro to his song. And, of course, as we, um, and for those of you who are familiar with it, I mean, there is a, a story to that, in a sense, as well, given that, um, yes, November is one of those months where nothing is ever certain, Um you know, any day that a, that a ship and her crew go out at the start of November, when the season ends, they're going out one last time. You know, things look great. 
And then all of a sudden, as they're going halfway through their trip, that's when Mother Nature really um, throws a 360 curveball at the ships and their captains and crew, So where it becomes a matter of survival. So, yes, um, it, it was very common for the use of poetry to be submitted regarding shipwreck incidents uh, really throughout the entire 19th century because the poetry alone was... It, it, Yes, as I said earlier, it conveyed a uh, law. It meant to help convey loss of life, a sense of grief, remembering those whom perished. In other words, keep their spirits alive, knowing that they were out there performing jobs that a lot of other people wouldn't have risked doing. As they say, somebody's got to perform a job that may not be um, one that might appeal to everyone else. So poetry here um, helps connect with um, those whom have lost, say, a loved one or those whom knew of someone that died. But the poetry itself is a way of connecting stories that will also be handed down from one generation to another. Benjamin Brown, French. I'm sure many of you all don't know his name, and that's okay. I, I didn't know anything about this guy. Uh, but Benjamin Brown French just so happened to be a politician on the state and federal level. He was a public commissioner of buildings in Washington, D.C. He was a telegraph business leader. He would have um, had lots of uh, connections to Samuel um, Morse, whom was the um, inventor of Morse code. However, on August 30th, 1845, four years and really in a sense um, almost uh, two weeks, four years really um, after the incident had, had occurred, the Baltimore Sun newspaper had published Benjamin French's uh, ballad, and a ballad is a poem or a song narrating a story in short lines or stanzas. Kind of like, you know, Gordon Light, the late Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, if you want to uh, take a good example um, from that scenario. But um, Benjamin Brown French, um, his uh, ballad or poem or song was in remembrance of Luther Fuller, whom was um, on uh, steamship Erie as the helmsman. He was, and a helmsman was one who was the person that steered the ship, and Luther Fuller died on August 9, 1841, at only 23 years of age, folks. Very young. French's ballad was mo most likely mentioned how Fuller, in this case, John Maynard, that fictional character, uh, would have been the one portraying um, Luther Fuller, the reason why this ballad's important here is because um, Luther Fullard, or what we would like to say in fictional name, John Maynard, remained at his post until the very end when Erie ultimately succumbed to her inevitable fate. So in other words, Luther Fuller did everything there was by um, steering the ship a starboard side uh, due in large part because of the command that was given to him by um, Captain Thomas Jefferson Titus, but he he didn't abandon ship. I mean, yes, Titus um, got off when he knew that you know he had done everything there was. 
you know, should he have perhaps gotten um, Luther Fuller off board? Uh, one could say yes, but the fires came so quickly that uh, sadly a lot of people perished because they just uh, were not in the right place at the right time. And even when they did jump off the boat or the ship, um, many of them probably did not have access to a life jacket. But then again, there were over 300 people aboard the ship, and they were, and the ship itself was equipped with only like 100 life jackets. So that really mean that means right there, folks, that even if 100 people had access to um, 100 life jackets or one life jacket per each person, that meant that over 200 people would not have access to a life jacket, and their chances of dying were probably higher than those whom were already equipped with one. Uh, for someone whom survived, well, rather I should say for some whom survived uh, the wreck of the steamship Erie, was avoiding death onto itself a major highlight of their lives? I know that sounds like an odd question right there. Well, you know, we none of us would certainly want to be in a situation where we were in a matter of life and death. But at the same time, knowing that we survived a horrific ordeal such as this one, I think it would be fair to say that avoiding death onto itself could have, in fact, been a major highlight of your life, and especially for all 89 whom survived out of uh, 343. Especially for Andrew Blyla, who is the 11-year-old callboy aboard Erie, Remember, folks, before uh, the Marconi wire came into play, uh, the callboy would be the one going from one end to the other on a boat, um, relaying um, messages of critical importance. Well, and we do recall from a previous uh, podcast segment where Andrew Blyla managed to survive in the midst of uh, escaping death probably within seconds or minutes. But Andrew Blyla um, went on to um, work in various professions. He still remained in the maritime industry by um, serving as a high sea sailor. He also became an owner of a, a grocery store. He also went on to become a cabinet maker. He even um, engaged in real estate speculating and uh, developing practices to co-founding the Erie County Historical Society. You know, it's one thing to overcome a, a, a tragic ordeal like this one, but Andrew Blyla, it would be fair to say, really made the most of his life knowing that he had been spared from, um, from a tragedy that had never occurred before on Lake Erie's waters, but sadly, did, but sadly um, an event like what happened on August 9th, 1841, you know, did happen, but knowing that that Andrew Blyla, being one of those 89 people who survived, uh, did, in fact, um, knowing that he avoided death, just so happened to be a major highlight of his life. And he was born on March 15th of 1830, folks. He was born in um, Bad Krausingen, uh, Germany. And we must keep in mind that uh, he and his family uh, came over uh, to America prior to 1841. And he came from a pretty uh, big family. 
interesting to think that when he would have been born, even though he was born in Germany in 1830, Andrew Jackson was president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams uh, had been gone for pretty much almost four years. James Monroe was still alive. So was James Madison. So I just you know find it interesting that um, in terms of fam uh, famous Americans at that time whom are still living, even um, John Marshall, who uh, was Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1801 to 1835, He's still Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court when Andrew Blyla was born. Andrew Blyla, folks, died on February 2nd, 1919, nearly 78 years after Steamship Erie sank. He died just one month shy of reaching his 89th birthday. Many descendants of Andrew Blyla's still retain good numbers of his works through um, that of furniture and cabinet making, which are well over a century old. And it just so happens that Andrew Blyla himself had uh, siblings of his, uh, brothers, that is, whom also served in uh, the maritime uh, industry, um, being along the, uh, that of the high seas. So, yes, in the midst of a tragedy knowing that at age 11 he witnessed a tragedy on the waters that he had never thought could happen, but yet it didn't stop him from being that of a high sea sailor, along with doing anything else that um, fascinated and intrigued him, knowing that he lived um, to be almost 89 years old was remarkable. Despite uh, the tragedy behind Erie's uh, sinking, were immigrants still uh, coming in droves, or I should say uh, large numbers, into the Old Northwest? Yes, the immigrants whom came over were determined to set a new course in a nation, being the United States, which offered better means behind attaining successes that couldn't get achieved per their native homelands within the Old World. Not just economic successes, but, you know, avoiding, how do you call it, um, avoiding, say, religious persecutions, avoiding anything that would have um, prevented uh, many immigrants from their uh, native ancestral lands from holding public office. Um, one, I know that there were a lot of uh, British, um, a lot of immigrants from England who came over to the New World and I know, and I've mentioned this one many of times from various uh, podcast uh, topics, and I probably mentioned this one from an earlier one, but I'm going to mention it again here real quick. Um, that infamous uh, Test Act that uh, British Parliament enacted back in 1661 made it mandatory for anyone who wanted to um, hold an elective office that they had to uh, take up loyalty to the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church, and if you did not have loyalty, um, or rather take up an oath with the Anglican Church, then you were barred from holding any elective office. You were barred pretty much from voting. There were uh, You really couldn't have any uh, say in uh, political affairs. But Parliament finally repealed that in 1828. But even before 1828, many uh, British um, peoples were coming into uh, America 
And one big reason probably why they were coming to America is that many of them were, um, many of them got driven away by an outdated law that probably had lost its relevancy, not just for one generation, but for multiple generations. And by coming into the new world, it, for, say, these British immigrants, they knew that there was a better opportunity of participating in uh, political affairs. That's just uh, my, um, my educated theory there. But those immigrants whom came into the old Northwest also went about constructing buildings and uh, to um, maintaining traditions and customs per, um, based upon where they um, originated from in the old world but they brought a lot of their traditions with them into the uh, new world. So basically, they're not forgetting their uh, ancestral roots. But those immigrants who came into the old Northwest went about constructing buildings per their old world styles from original settlements in Europe. While many immigrants did settle within, old North, within the old Northwest, there were those, believe it or not, folks, who established new places or settlements west of Illinois, say in Missouri, and as far southwest as Texas during the mid to late 1840s. The German settlers, I thought this was very interesting, they were known for establishing deep roots, given how land to them was vital. Land alone for Germans became um, a basis of an estate which could get handed down from one generation to the next. So in other words, they... It's fair to say that German immigrants didn't believe in moving from point A to point B all the time, but when once they got established somewhere, they wanted to um, make sure that the family remained intact. If it meant, you know, building um, property adjacent to the main um, dwelling that had already been established, then let's do that. But we don't need to move 100 miles um, just because, you know, we've run out of room. Given large numbers of immigrants had traveled along the Erie Canal, and we must not forget that the Erie Canal was the Erie Canal was more than just uh, transporting goods from point A to point B. We have to be constantly reminded that the Erie Canal was a vital um, way of um, transporting mostly, you know, immigrants whom um, made their way into the old uh, into the old Northwest. Uh, so that they could go about starting their new lives, but also uh, the canals helped um, those emigrating from, say, eastern seaport cities westward so that America as a nation could be more um, better protected um, past uh, the Appalachian Mountains. So given that large numbers of immigrants had traveled, traveled along the Erie Canal, which led them to their new settlement places, is it fair to say that the Erie Canal alone helped contribute to the construction of other canals in the United States? Let's think about that for a moment. Hang tight here. Well, after just having a, gla having a sip of tea with regards to that question, I've come to the conclusion that the answer is yes. The Erie Canal, believe it or not, folks, was responsible 
enough to where um, five states, of course, the Erie Canal folks is in New York State, starts at the Hudson River, rather, in New York City, and goes all the way uh, to uh, Buffalo, New York, 363 miles, uh, an engineering feat for its day, to say the least. But the Erie Canal did, um, the presence of the Erie Canal alone, folks, did enable five other states to construct canals. And between 1823, just two, two years shy of when the Erie Canal was officially completed, and into 1828, three years after the canal itself was officially completed, New York State saw other canals open from as far north as uh, Champlain, which is um, not far from the U.S.-Canada line, not too far from Montreal, Oswego in, um, in the Tug Hill region along Lake Ontario, to uh, the Finger Lakes region of what's known as the Cayuga-Seneca Canal. So, you know, yes, we like to think, oh, it was just the Erie Canal alone, but no, other canals um, evolved thanks in large part to the current um, success that the Erie Canal had. And by the early 1850s, the United States had up to 4,500 miles of navigable canal water. There's nothing stopping canals, at least it seems like that. However, another form of transportation did get started just shortly after the canals, shortly after the Erie Canal uh, took off. There was a railroad company that um, got started in 1828, and one of its um, inaugural board members just so happened to be the last signer of the Declaration of Independence. It was Mr. Charles Carroll of Maryland. That railroad was the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, or what we know as the B&O. As a matter of fact, the B&O um, remained up in operation until about the late 1950s. And I know that, it, um, given that I live in Virginia, it went into, um, into the Shenandoah Valley. I know is uh, far north in the Shenandoah Valley is uh, Winchester and uh, Strasburg. But by, um, yes, by the early 1850s, the U.S. had up to 4,500 miles of navigable canal water. But once the advent of rail increases, canals are going to be facing an uphill competition. You know, most canal boats are what we think of like the packet boats that are, um, that are drawn by a team of mules. They usually can travel about five miles an hour at most which, you know, is revolutionary. But if we're going by rail, folks, isn't it fair to say that the trains, even in that day and time, are moving faster than five miles an hour? I would say yes. So once, once uh, rail um, comes more about, a.k.a. train tracks, goes west, the need for water routes through canal, or via canal, I should say, eventually became less in demand, whereas rail became more so in demand. But despite railroads overtaking canals by the mid-19th century, the Erie Canal continued to thrive, even into the start of the 20th century. Okay, so, you know, the presence of canals, folks, it's still not a total loss. 
However, um, 105 years ago, in 1918, the New York State Barge Canal went about overseeing uh, that a deeper uh, Erie Canal uh, be put into use. And this uh, canal, believe it or not, covered 525 miles of waterway. So it basically um, it, um, it uh, increased drastically in size from the existing 363 miles that had been put into use from, like, say, 1825 to uh, 1918. But come 1926, the year after uh, the canal's centennial celebration, the Erie Canal itself was overtaken by thousands of miles of railroad track, which could carry passengers and cargo at much faster speeds. So, I, I don't know if it's—I don't know if it would be right to say that the Erie Canal was behind its time. I mean, the canal was still thriving well, even uh, during a time when America was d divided and a civil war had been going on, the canal still seemed to be doing okay in the post-Civil War era, Reconstruction. The canal seemed to make it, but it was but as time went along and railroads continued to expand, the competition between the Erie Canal and the railroads was no longer a viable competition. The railroads ultimately prevailed. However, there is good news to report that the Erie Canal did undergo uh, a major restoration, most notably in the, in the late 1990s, to where um, you can take scenic boat rides. Uh, my wife and I did that this past summer up in New York's Finger Lakes region, where we did an uh, hour-and-a-half Erie Canal boat ride that took us from uh, Fairport to uh, Pittsford uh, areas outside of Rochester, and we got um, raised uh, 25 feet and lowered 25 feet. That was very uh, well worth uh, the experience. But if I ever had the chance to do another section of the Erie Canal in New York State in terms of boat ride, I would seize on it in a heartbeat. Now, uh, something else we should keep in mind that it would be easy to think that, oh, um, canals are the only thing in existence in New York State. There's just no way that there could be a railroad, or even the thought of building rail tracks. What if I told you all that seven years after the Erie Canal had been officially completed in 1825, that from 1832 to 1851, nearly 20, nearly during a 20-year uh, span, that construction took place, resulting in the 415-mile rail line going from New York City to Dunkirk. Just south of Buffalo, not right around Hamburg and uh, Sheridan Bay, or uh, Sheridan, I should say. Because, you know, is, if I'm not mistaken, Dunkirk, isn't that where uh, Steamship Erie, um, uh, where the wreck of Steamship Erie occurred not far from the shoreline of Dunkirk? That, uh, that's, that's correct. So, um, Rail line construction took place before and after the wreck of the Erie. That's what I find, find interesting. So given that this began in 1832, nine years before Erie sank and five years before Erie, um, before the fourth and final Erie was uh, built, and ten years after Erie sank, it finally became a reality the 415-mile uh, line was owned by the New York and Erie Railroad, 
1841 wreck of Erie per uh, newspapers. Um, had reported uh, deaths between 200 and 250, but the total number was 254. That means um, about 74% of all, uh, th there was about a 74 percentage uh, rate of uh, casualties um, per the Erie disaster. So, you know, yes, uh, we have one, Yes, we've got ships, and yes, we've got um, ships moving by canal and by Great Lakes waters. And then we've got rails, uh, not just rail tracks, but trains coming through. All of it's revolutionary, but at some point, one form of transportation is going to overtake the other. And even if one form does take over the other, does it still ensure that the new method of transportation could be safer than what's... Um, than what's currently uh, working. Let's find out about uh, people like uh, Charles Manning Reed and um, Captain uh, T.J. Titus. What became of Charles Manning Reed in the aftermath following Erie's wreck? Well, for starters, he won election in 1842 as a Whig to the 28th Congress, which convened from March 4th, 1843 to March 4th, 1845, during the final two years of John Tyler's presidency. Secondly, he lost re-election in 1844, but after a short-lived stint in Congress, Reed returned to the shipping business practices on the Great Lakes, but yet went about pursuing business interests from banking, mercantile, and believe it or not, railroad, all of this between 1846 and 8 to 1849. So it is fair to say that Charles Manning Reed, I guess we could give him some credit on one hand for um, maybe he did learn from his mistakes, given that he had not really had a whole lot of knowledge in what went on with an inquest or how to go about filing for one, because it's a shame that he didn't go through um, Erie, Pennsylvania when through the uh, Erie, Pennsylvania jurisdiction protocol when, in fact, he had filed that uh, inquest with the um, coroner in Buffalo, New York. But the bottom line is, is that, um, as I think as we all have come to the realization, is that the sooner that trial took place and the quicker it got resolved, it could put aside people's fears of traveling uh, by steamship. So we do have to hope that Charles Manning Reed did learn from some um, lessons and that he became better acquainted with the inquest process and and with how investigations needed to be conducted. I mean, we just got to hope that he learned from a handful of things. December 16, 1871, Charles Manning Reed died at age 68. His son, Charles M. Reed, Charles M. Reed Jr., or I should say Charles Manning Reed Jr., how about that? He went on to serve as mayor of Erie from 1872 to 1873. What uh, became of uh, Captain T.J. Titus, or I should say Thomas Jefferson Titus, in the years after Erie sinking? Folks, you're going to find this uh, hard to believe, but it's a very uh, noble thing that he uh, partook in. He became a leading proponent of the Underground Railroad movement. In other words, 
he helped runaway slaves whom escaped the South and went north and as far north into Canada so that they could start a new life and be um, immune from the evils that uh, slavery had, um, had, had brought about. And the reason probably why a lot of slaves did go, runaway slaves went into Canada, folks, was because in 1850, Congress enacted what was called the Fugitive Slave Act. Basically what that act allowed, um, so allowed slave, ho slave owners in the South is that it, it enabled them the right to go north into northern states like New Hampshire, New York, Pennsylvania, Maine. It, you know, it allowed um, a slave master and um, his um, assistants to go north with a valid search warrant or with a valid warrant to say, hey, John Smith is missing. We know he's, um, he's up this way. And we have probable cause to believe that there are those um, whom are um, aiding and abetting this man so that he uh, does not fall back into our hands. So basically, uh, the Fugitive Slave Act allowed Southerners to go into uh, northern states and um, capture their, um, their uh, runaway uh, slaves. So I, I can understand why runaway slaves wanted to go as far north past the uh, U.S. Uh, border into Canada, where they would have um, not only been so much in another country, but would have been completely immune from the uh, Fugitive Slave Act uh, law altogether. Not to get into anything political, folks, but that's just something uh, we should uh, be reminded of. And yes, uh, Captain uh, T.J. Titus uh, took on something that, um, that was... Um, probably seen as controversial no matter where you lived. You didn't have to be confined to just the South uh, for this uh, issue, but yes, he was a leading proponent of the Underground Railroad movement that involved ferrying and transporting Underground Railroad passengers, and we can say runaway slaves, to Canada by way of his ordinary route from Dunkirk, New York, to Detroit, to Detroit, Michigan. Um, I, it, uh, whenever you hear the city, uh, don't... I heard someone say, don't, don't call it Detroit, call it Detroit. Uh, Captain Titus guided runaway slaves on a Detroit-bound steamer into Fort Malden, or what's known as uh, Amherstburg, Ontario. Uh, fort Malden served as a vital uh, fort uh, during the War of 1812, in case you all are wondering um, why, uh, that is, why that fort, how that fort was of significant use. And uh, Captain Titus um, made one of the reasons for going frequently into the Fort Malden, Amherstburg, Ontario area was because he would stop and resupply for, so re for such vital resources like wood. In 1866, Captain Thomas Jefferson Titus died at, at around 60 years of age. And just before he died, even in the early 1850s, there was a service line known as the Lakeshore Railroad Service out of Toledo, Ohio. It went into effect, but it replaced travel via waterway canal where steamboats were forced into transporting more so cargo than uh, passengers to and from the upper Great Lakes, that is Superior, Michigan, Huron, and Erie. 
So yes, uh, steamboats could still go by a canal, waterway, but their primary job now, come the 1850s, is not transporting people anymore. It's just cargo and, and freight. You know, trains can do that, but what can trains do for people at a faster pace that the canal boats can't do? The trains can move at a much faster pace, and people are able to get to their destinations from point A to point B a lot quicker. Did any of the maritime uh, crew painters uh, survive the tragedy behind Erie's wreck? I should say sinking. Yes, uh, but only two out of the eight survived uh, the ordeal, you know, 25%. Whereas 25 out of 38 Erie's crew people perished, meaning 66% lost their lives. Only 13 survived, and one of those 13, we could say, was... Well, uh, well, a couple of them, like, say, Andrew Blyla, uh, Thomas Jefferson Titus, just to name a few. For the other 72 who survived, they were uh, passengers. You do the math there, that's 81%. You know, on one hand, I guess we could say it's good, but the sad part is less than 100 people survived. That, to me, is the, the saddest of, of tragedies. When it came to listing, and, and here's some really uh, in, interesting information that we've got to uh, really pay careful attention to when it comes to not so much uh, identifying the missing, but how they are reported in the papers per their spellings. When it came to listing uh, missing persons per the newspapers, how were those missing described via their first names? How about this? by providing an initial for a person's first name. One good um, example case in this um, tragic situation had to do with a man named Ansel Ricker. His name was spelled A-N-S-E-L, Ansel Ricker, whose name got listed per the newspapers as follows, in quotations, A. Ricker. Okay, well, if you have someone's uh, first initial, a gentleman's first initial of A, and then the last name Ricker, well, I mean, you could go through every uh, man's um, name that starts with an A, left and right, like Austin, Andrew, Arthur, um, Anthony. I mean, you could go down a whole list, but how do you really, how would you ever know for sure that no matter how many names you gave out in their full entirety in terms of first name, there's no guarantee that whatever you've uh, mentioned down the roll call could be one of those um, individuals' actual name, first names. Immigrants noted as missing per newspapers often had their last names mispronounced, which made proper identification all the more challenging. And I could really see how this would be difficult, folks. How about the German name of Ziegler? Some of us here in America would probably say Ziegler, Z-I-E-G-L-E-R, but in German, it would probably be Ziegler. In, in the papers, in the American newspapers, that um, name was listed in quotations as Zugler, Z-U-G-L-E-R. Newspaper coverage from the 19th century with regards to spellings or pronunciations all tended to derive, or I should say originate, from accounts per source from where an event itself took place. 
so think about it, folks. If given that the Erie sank uh, not far from uh, the shore of uh, Dunkirk, would it be fair to say that um, given that yes, the Erie steamship Erie's route did go as far west as Chicago, despite that, even if uh, newspaper reporter reporters came from Chicago and Milwaukee. Uh, went into Dunkirk to get the story they needed to rep uh, to issue for uh, their uh, cities or towns' papers, are they going to be able to get the same information that uh, would have been relayed to um, reporters from newspaper companies, say, in Buffalo and Erie? No. The reason I say that is because Newspapers from Chicago and Milwaukee were less likely to have reporters right near Silver Creek, New York, between uh, Silver Creek and uh, Dunkirk, meaning their story versions did simply just could not par up with the newspapers right from the heart of, of the scene um, where near uh, where uh, I should say Buffalo and Erie are, given that um, Silver Creek and Dunkirk being south of just south of uh, Buffalo, where the sinking happened, and then uh, Steamship Erie having um, been built in Erie, Pennsylvania. So so that that's just uh, one of those uh, double-edged sword uh, things there, to say the least. Uh, what did the Buffalo uh, firm of Parsons and um, Company practice? This company helped provide newspapers with the total numbers of sailing tickets given to each family, the information provided by Parsons and Company was found to be challenging based upon verbiage. Like, for example, a man had, in quotations, had seven tickets. A reporter could have seen it as the man and seven others, but in reality, the wording meant only six others. It's just, you know, those kinds of oddball pieces that really could have, th that simply threw a news reporter for uh, curveballs that were just very hard to identify, given the circumstances not only that had taken place, but just the um, hard, arduous process of being able to um, properly identify a person based upon their um, official name and also being able to uh, relay uh, vital information to family members whom were still in search of a dis of a missing or sadly a deceased um, relative or deceased uh, family relatives. Was the drama high when it came to listing uh, passengers from within a single family? Oh, I can't I can't imagine what the drama must have been like because it's probably fair to say that many. Uh, families in large numbers came aboard Erie. You know, 10 members, 12, I don't know, maybe 15. But the fact is, is that if you had a family of 10, who's not to say that maybe seven died out of the family of 10 on board this ship? I, you know, it, it sadly, it probably did happen. But yes, there was a lot of drama when it came to listing passengers from within a single family. Uh, one happened here where it was not even 10 family members, folks. It just so happened that uh, multiple American newspapers had reported three bodies labeled as uh, members of the Hang family, H-A-N-G, Hang family. July 9th, one month before Erie sank, ship Villa de Leon transported Johann 
Hanning, and his 11-year-old son, along with a six-month-old da- daughter, Hanning, H-A-N-I-N-G, or I know some might say Han- Hanning, but here's the other interesting uh, question, or uh, interesting um, mystery to this, uh, sen- this uh, story. Nothing was mentioned about a Mrs. Hanning. Some historians believe Mrs. Hanning might have already gone to a new place of establishment, either in Ohio or Illinois. But her future proved tragic, as husband and children were among the 254 casualties of steamship Erie wreck. Sadly, Mrs. Hanning would never have uh, gotten to have um, said goodbye to her husband and children, um, she never got to see them um, meet up with her. So it's fair to say that sadly she had to start life in a new world all on her own. Uh, historians don't even know if um, other family or relatives had accompanied her. But we certainly do hope, though, that uh, she was looked after by other um, by other uh, members or other people from within the country that she would have um, been coming from, more than likely she probably would have been coming from uh, Germany or Switzerland, my best guess. Would Congress enact new steamboat legislation in the aftermath of the Erie wreck, followed by other steamship boiler mishaps? Believe it or not, folks, it was not until 11 years after steamship Erie wrecked in 1852, that Congress finally enacted a newer piece of steamboat legislation, which proved paramount given that in the past eight months, folks, listen to this, that within the past eight months prior to uh, when new steamboat legislation was enacted, seven boiler explosions occurred on steamboats that led to the loss of over 700 lives. That probably means then, folks, that seven boiler explosions on seven ships, the loss over over 700 lives, that means that well over 100 people per each of these ships had died. Something's got to be done here, folks. So the 1850, 1852 Steamship Act included implementing accurate standards. Nothing shoddy. Accurate practices behind steamboat boiler construction to rules, guidelines about safety valves, as well as operating pressures, including instituting a licensing system for all operators of passenger steamboats. Modernized state of federal inspection service practices. You know, the 1838 Act said that, okay, the uh, boiler, uh, the boilers can be inspected once every 12 months. And then um, another uh, piece uh, or another measure can be done once every six months. Or, or So, yes, that was a great start. But when you consider that you've got now seven boiler explosions occurring on steamboats within eight months prior to this uh, steam, the, the second piece of steamboat legislation being enacted, something's got to give. You know, we've got to modify this. Yes, we may not be able to be immune from steamboat shipwreck, steamboat or steamship wrecks altogether, but we've got to modify this so that it doesn't become a permanent long-term norm. Has Lake Erie seen a large number of shipwrecks? Yes, nearly 
2,000 shipwrecks have taken place along Lake Erie's waters. And believe it or not, folks, only around roughly 400 shipwrecks along the lake have been discovered. That's probably about 20% or just somewhere above 20%, but it's a small number. Well, it just so happens, folks, that Erie, Lake Erie, is one of the shallowest of the Great Lakes. Even Seneca Lake in New York State, which is one of New York State's 11 Finger Lakes, is bigger than Lake Erie in terms of its depth. Lake Erie's deepest point, folks, is only 210 feet, meaning most shipwrecks can be spotted at around 100 feet below the surface. The remains of steamship Erie, being that of her hulk, were raised in July of 1854, 13 years after she sunk, after her um, demise of the wreck. When she, when her hulk was raised, it just so happened that over 200,000 per melted uh, gold and silver uh, specie was uh, discovered. Talk about a lot of money there. But the Hulk was, um, Hulk, the Hulk itself, Erie's Hulk, was um, sent to Buffalo where it got entirely disposed. What was left of Erie existed 13 years after her, after the wreck, and she was uh, completely um, disposed of uh, seven years before uh, shots were fired at Fort Sumter, South Carolina, when the, um, when the Civil War broke out. Well, folks, we've um, come to the end of this uh, podcast uh, book topic series. It's been a phenomenal one, uh, largely in part because this, is, uh, uh, this shipwreck was probably one that most of you had never heard of, but I'm glad to know that many of you all um, appreciated learning about this one. I think it is important to remember um, shipwrecks that have not gotten a lot of uh, attention, or if they have gotten attention, um, it has not been on a um, broad scale. It Maybe it's been more of a regional thing. But I do know that even for shipwrecks that aren't as well-known as, say, like Titanic and Lusitania, sh all shipwrecks uh, do have a story. And a story that you know must be told, a story that should not be forgotten, uh, because you know those whom passed away on shipwrecks, whether it was for um, business or whether it was for uh, transporting passengers to and from point A to point B, those people shouldn't be forgotten. Those people made sacrifices, and sometimes they didn't. Um, get to uh, live to see the end results. Think about it, folks, 254 people, the majority of them being immigrants. Yes, they had a grand envision of where they were going to in the New World, but they never got to see that final place of where they would be establishing their new homes in a new world where a better life, a better opportunity, a better chance at attaining that American dream would be um, would be all within their reach. So the steamship, uh, the wreck of the steamship Erie, should just serve as a reminder of just how how um, unfortunate and tragic 
innocence can be taken from us, especially at the hands of man when man does not um, um, take care of um, of what needs to be taken care of before the inevitable happens. Thank you for your time, and I'll be looking forward to being back on the air again soon. Stay safe. Take care. <laughs>